Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So many clinicians told me that having those conversations with young people about what it might be like to undergo a medical transition were really, really difficult. And that some young people just wouldn't or couldn't hear that. You know, what would it be like to be a trans man, you know, a woman with an enlarged clitoris through taking testosterone? How would that affect your sex life? Who would your future partners be? You know, vaginal atrophy is a well-known side effect of taking testosterone in trans men. And they felt that those conversations needed to be had, but that some young people couldn't hear them. And they said, well, if they can't face or be told about the reality, then are they really providing consent? I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. So I'm not sure how many of you have heard of the Tavistock controversy that has raged for a number of years now, but I'm guessing many of you are aware of the heated debate that often dominates headlines about childhood transgender transitioning. It might even touch you personally. I have three friends with teenage children who are in various stages of the process. And what I've found is that the parents, the schools, the kids themselves the medical world, we're all trying to grapple with the issues involved, while at the same time, trans and non-binary identification, according to one study, may be up as much as 1,000% among young people. So my wild guest today has been at the fulcrum of this highly charged, sensitive, multifaceted and horribly politicised debate, one that I think is important to explore, mostly for what it says about where young people are at psychologically. Hannah Barnes is an award-winning BBC investigations journalist who exposed how the Gender Identity Development Service, or GIDS, or GIDS as it's called, at the Tavistock Clinic in London referred up to 2,000 kids, some as young as nine years old, for treatment to block puberty, largely in the absence of adequate data and research about its safety and efficacy and without oversight for more than 30 years. Her findings then became a new book called Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children, which was a book that was rejected 22 times by publishers in the UK, but has just been picked up by a publisher in the US, and it did become an overnight Sunday Times bestseller. It includes over 100 hours of interviews with close to 60 former clinicians who worked at the Tavistock Clinic. 
Now, around the world, trans issues inflame, it would seem, just about everyone, particularly in the US, where Hannah has just returned from. Hannah's own work is being weaponised by the far right and has been used to justify a bunch of red state bans and clampdowns on treatments for young people. The Tavistock Clinic itself wound up closing last year amid all this controversy. And earlier this year, Britain's National Health Service announced that they were banning the use of puberty blockers for children altogether, except for those enrolled in a tightly regulated clinical trial. I've been following the debate for several years, and I've written about it on Substack, and I'll put the links in the show notes. I feel that the way that the adults in the room have handled this issue has overwhelmingly harmed young people and trans people generally. The debate has also exposed a bunch of deeper issues that remain unaddressed while ever all of this noise and polarisation continues. All of it is important and much of it is misunderstood. For this reason, I wanted to invite Hannah onto Wild. Her work is wild and her ride has been very wild, but she remains a very measured voice in it all. I wanted to use this discussion to get clear on a number of nuanced points why blockers are still being used to such a large degree, including in Australia, when so little research on their safety and long-term effect exists, why children can consent to life-altering medication in this way, how these treatments can put children on a one-way ticket to much more serious procedures, why and how 35% of gender dysphoric teens are autistic, the massive uptick in kids identifying as trans worldwide, and the important reasons why there are suddenly way more girls than boys wanting to transition. This is a very contentious issue, and you'll hear Hannah and I tread very carefully in this conversation, and I'm guessing I stuff up on the correct terminology at least once or twice. But I invite everyone listening to see beyond this to the bigger issue. You know, like always. Hannah Barnes, so wonderful to have you on this podcast. I follow your work very closely and we've got a mutual friend in Helen Lewis who's been on Wild before and it was a wonderfully fun, dynamic conversation. I suspect this one's going to be a little bit the same because you strike me as being quite similar, a very reasoned voice in the realm of nuance and complexity in the world. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me as well. So maybe we could start here. How did you come to report on this particular issue? And could you give some background on the Tavistock Clinic or the Gender Identity Development Service, or GIDS as it's called? It's only one clinic among many in the world. However, it was the second to establish itself globally, and this is about 30, 35 years ago. And so many of the issues that you were exposed at Tavistock are also playing out in other clinics around the world. So I came across the topic, I suppose, of children and young people transitioning, I guess in about 2017. I was off work at the time on maternity leave with my oldest child, so I had a bit of extra time. And there was a television documentary about a children's gender clinic in Canada. And it was very controversial at the time. It had been targeted by some in the trans community and others being accused of conversion therapy. So not accepting young people's trans identities and, and trying to keep them what they would call cisgender, I suppose, and, and stop them transitioning. I didn't know anything about it. And I found this documentary completely fascinating because it spoke to lots of different young people and their families. And it struck me that there was absolute 
extreme and genuine distress in all of these cases, but they had very, very different outcomes. And the people working in the clinic seemed very reasonable and compassionate, and they did support some young people medically transitioning, but they said it wasn't something that you should rush into. And I, I just thought it was very interesting that very similar experiences at the beginning could lead to very, very different outcomes. And then I suppose from that point on, there started to be more discussion in particularly the British newspapers about sex and gender generally, because we were debating whether to have self-ID here for, for, for trans people. But there wasn't a huge amount of attention being paid to to, to this issue of, of, of children and young people. And I guess fast forward a year or so, and there was a leak of a report or parts of a report, we knew it existed at least, which had been written by a psychiatrist called Dr. David Bell. Now, he, just to explain, he worked in the adult service at the Tavistock Clinic. And the Tavistock Clinic is based in North London. It has a worldwide reputation for being a leader in mental health treatments, largely talking therapies. And he worked in the adult service. And another service as part of the Tavistock Clinic is the Gender Identity Development Service. I call it JIDS, actually, but it's it's some people call it GIDS, some people call it JIDS. And 10 staff, 10 professionals, 10 clinicians had gone to Dr. Bell with some really quite serious concerns they had about the way the service was running. So these were staff that you know, were face-to-face -face with those young people every single day through their work, trying to help them. And they went to him with several really quite worrying things and said, you know, something has to change. We've tried to raise our concerns within the service itself. We've gone to other people within the wider Tavistock and nothing seems to be happening. And that report was, was leaked in part to one of the British newspapers. And I read that and I thought, well, I don't know if what those clinicians are saying is true because I haven't looked at this at all yet, but it really deserves attention. And at that point, there wasn't really much focused attention on this in particular. So as I say, there was there was this wider debate going on about self-ID and, and trans women and women's spaces and all this kind of stuff. But there wasn't a focus on this issue of the health side, if you like, like children and young people medically transitioning. So I just started researching it. I was at BBC Newsnight at the time. Uh, I was very fortunate. They gave me a lot of time to, to go and do that. And I met sort of my first clinician who worked at the service in May 2019. And I, I knew there was a story from that point on that was Dr. Anna Hutchinson. And she was very, very cautious at that point, which you'd understand. And that was just an off the record conversation in her in her office. And and then it kind of went from there. And and we thought, well, where do we start with a health story? We start with the evidence base. And that that's kind of what we did. Yeah. And I'll I'll sort of set things up a little bit as well by saying that at no point in your research or in your book do you question you know, the veracity of young people wishing to transition or their right to transition. It's no. really a story about the the medical issues, the care issues surrounding all of this. And it exposes then a whole bunch of broader societal issues, which we'll we'll get to now. But Tavistock started out, I think, 30, 35 years ago by providing 
mostly kind of well-meaning talking therapies, right, to young people. It was yeah. it was very responsible and, and not a lot of kids were passing through the clinic. But, you know, it, was, it had a very good reputation. But at some point, I think it was sometime in the 90s, the treatment changed to predominantly referring kids onto puberty blockers. I'd love you to talk through how these blockers work. Okay, just to preface that, that it's true that blockers became available at some point in the 90s, but but it's not fair to say that the, the majority went on to take them. So at that point, you had to be 16. There was quite a hard cutoff. And actually, at that point, sort of the majority of young people that were seen at the service weren't referred on to the blocker and their difficulties were resolved by the time they got to that, that age or, or, or even if they hadn't been fully resolved people were happy to to keep their bodies as they were and not have medical interventions. So blockers work. That's not actually their real name. This is this colloquialism we've come but basically they are a drug that's 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 used widely in medicine, predominantly actually f- for the treatment of prostate cancer, endometriosis, all sorts of things, the chemical castration of sex offenders as well. And what they do is they they act on the pituitary gland of the brain and they switch off the sex hormones that are released into our bodies, which you know have a, an enormous impact on on us as as men and women, and when you do that at the sort of outset of pre- puberty, it essentially stops any given child developing in the puberty of their biological sex. So, if you're female, that will stop any periods. It will stop breast development. If you're male. It will stop the development of an Adam's apple, the broadening of the shoulders, things like that. They're not licensed to be used for the treatment of gender dysphoria or gender distress or in this way at all. The only thing they're licensed for in children is what's known as precocious puberty, so early puberty. And that's like really early. So if you're kind of seven, six, seven, eight, and you only take them for a pretty short period of time, the shortest as you possibly can, and then you stop. And then you go through your body's natural puberty. And that's really different to how they're used in the treatment of young people with gender dysphoria. Because in excess of 95% of the time, those young people don't stop. They then go on to take hormones, either testosterone or estrogen. So they never go through their body's biological puberty. And also they're taking them at a later stage and a stage which pretty much any neuropsychologist will tell you is absolutely vital for all kinds of development whether that's psychological your sexual identity obviously your your bone maturity so that they act in a very different way actually when they're used in this medical treatment yeah i think i understand though that they're used in this medical treatment to buy time that's ostensibly why these kids are being referred to blockers, is it buys them time to be able to think through whether this is the right decision for them and so that they can then decide to go on and get surgery or further treatments to complete transition. However, my understanding, I mean, there's a whole range of problems with this. As you say, they're taking them at a later stage and there's a bunch of issues there. From what I understand, there's a whole bunch of health issues, you know, when you're mucking around with hormones at that age. And the science is not conclusive on all of this. There's also not uh, sort of any conclusive evidence as to whether the effects are entirely permanent. What have you found 
in terms of the damage that it can do to these kids when they're taking them in this form in, and they're not allowing their bodies to go through their natural hormonal transition into the adult version of their gender. Well, it's really difficult to separate any impact of puberty blockers from the subsequent use of synthetic hormones because the vast majority of young people who start on the blocker will, will continue in their medical transition. So it's a really difficult question to answer. And I think, to be fair and to be honest, we, we actually don't really know the full impact of blockers because the studies that exist are all really quite poor. And that's that's the judgment, not of me. You know, I'm a journalist, I'm not a clinician, but that is the judgment of scientists and experts in evidence-based medicine who have undertaken a systematic review of the evidence, whether that's here in England, our authorities, or Sweden, or Finland, you know, that they all they've all come to the same conclusion that the evidence base is a very low certainty of health benefits or risks to these. We just don't really know because the studies are so poor. So all we have really are anecdote and what we know about how the body works. So one of the things that happens when young people take puberty blockers is their bones, if you like, stop strengthening in the way they would if they were not on them because it's those that massive kick in of sex hormones when we're going through puberty that leads to this very, very, very quick acceleration of the accrual of of, of bone density. And that's what we need in order not to have osteoporosis until we're very, very old. What we know is that young people on blockers have much, 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 much lower bone density to the level of osteoporosis or, or its precursor, osteopenia, while they're on the blocker compared to their peers. But I guess you would expect that because that process is blocked. Now, what we don't know is whether that has a long-term damaging effect because the reintroduction of hormones, whether that's your body's natural hormones or, in fact, synthetic hormones, restarts that process and then the bones start strengthening again. And we, we know that, but what we don't know is whether a young person who's been on puberty blockers, whether their bones will reach the strength they would have had they not. Does that make sense? So so we don't really know. I mean, our, our National Health Service here in the UK now says little is known about the long-term effects of puberty blockers when used for this purpose on psychological development, on brain development, you know, so we just don't know. There have been no studies looking. This is the point though, isn't it? That we don't know. And it's this grand experiment being done on on young people at such a profound stage in their lives. And at the same time, it's kind of necessary for allowing a young person to determine if this is the choice they want to make. It basically gives them the best sort of, I guess, chance to make a transition later in an easier way because their body hasn't already gone into their their, their sex kind of expression, the one that they were born with. I think that's absolutely true for some young people. But I mean, I was at a conference recently and, and speaking to, to many clinicians globally and, and certainly even, even a private clinic that's set up here in the UK, which is very affirming. It's certainly the case that for young biological males who, who will transition to be trans women, there is a benefit there. There's far less so for, for females. I, I, I think it's acknowledged that, Interesting. That, 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 that if you're biologically female and you identify as trans and, and you're going to live your life as a trans man, you, you can certainly 
begin that transition in in adulthood. It's the, the results. Yes, you don't aren't need the blockers. No, mm, you okay. don't. And and actually, you know, I'd, I'd sort of pose a question that actually the vast majority of of, of trans boys or, or girls, what, whatever language we want to use, who were referred for and then later prescribed blockers via the Tavistock, were had already gone through puberty. So so it raises the question: What is the purpose of the blocker? Because it's not to block puberty in those cases, because they've been through puberty. Yes, but one of the other issues you raise in your book is that only 5% of the patients at Tavistock in the 90s, which is when they weren't using blockers to the same extent that they're being used today, only 5% reported growing up to be trans. So once they sort of went through this period of, you know, perhaps getting counselling, talking through things, passing through the very confusing stage of puberty, and which is a time of questioning your identity in all kinds of ways, they mostly went on to be to identify as gay in adulthood and, and didn't go through the transition. But by 2016, GIDS patients or Tavistock patients who had taken blockers, the majority medically transitioned once they became adults. And I think I've got this right as well, Hannah, correct me if I'm wrong, but a 2016 review of the available studies estimated that without medical interventions, gender dysphoria in children resolved itself during or after puberty in about 80% of cases. So that's a huge number of kids who are asking all the questions, going through, you know, God knows what emotionally and, in you know, with identity issues, but they eventually decide that they don't wish to do it. They don't feel that they need to transition to another, to another gender. I mean, that's a huge issue, isn't it? Like... Is it the blockers that are having a big part to play in this? A lot to unpick there. Is it the blockers playing a part in that? Well, that is certainly a hypothesis that more recent clinicians had, which is rather than providing this you know, time and space to think, which, which you've already mentioned, in fact, it seemed to them it, it tended to lock in an identity and it shut down any thinking or, or, or actually any, any want or need to explore it just gave the young person what they wanted and and it cemented an identity and that was a, that was always the fear of of reducing the age at which the blocker could be available and and the endocrinologist that worked with jids and and the jids leadership itself was always very honest about that to be fair they said we're not sure it could be that if you start doing this at a younger age we could lock in an identity that would otherwise change so all these things are just hypotheses because the evidence base is, is so uncertain that the studies are all very, very poor. There are no no control group of any kind. Just as it's a hypothesis that the blocker somehow locks in a trans identity, it's it's equally a hypothesis. And, and you know, people admitted this to me while I was writing the book, that that they provide time to think. I mean, that's never been proven it was just an idea and it makes perfect sense on paper it just doesn't seem to be the case in in reality, reality. Um, and yeah. in going back to your your 80% figure well that figure is cited a lot there are certainly many in the trans community that reject it they would say that these older studies these were just gender non-conforming children they didn't have this intense distress and this persistent you know cross-sex identity but i think what we can say is that of every single study that has existed of the last, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years, that has included a group of gender distressed or gender non-conforming children, you took that group, some 
grew up to be trans adults and some didn't. So there has always been two outcomes. And I think that is a little bit lost in gender clinics these days. But of the group that did grow up to be trans adults, yes, they were much, much smaller. They were the minority and the majority that didn't would be gay or lesbian or bisexual. So I, I think we can sort of debate about the percentages, but it, yeah, it's always been the case that many who had these very strong feelings of being trans in childhood didn't grow up to transition. And most of them were gay or lesbian adults. Consent is a massive issue in all of this because, you know, I think in the US where this this debate is raging, I mean, they can't vote till they're 21, can't get a driver's license. Well, I think it's at 16 over there, but in the UK and Australia, you've got to be 18. There's a whole range of things that we don't allow kids to do because they don't have the maturity to make the required decisions. And yet, you know, when it comes to something so important, like defining their gender going forward and actually going ahead with with surgery and, you know, hormonal interference, it beggars belief that we are allowing kids this. Now, it's again, there's two sides to this story. If a child is experiencing incredible distress because they really do believe themselves to be of the opposite gender to which they were born, then it makes sense to to intervene medically and relieve them of that distress. But flip side, as, as we've just been discussing, so many kids, you know, settle after a bit and realise, okay, no, this is not what I want to do. I'm going to stick with the gender I was born with. But, yeah, I mean, the consent issue in all of this, this must be part of the debate as well. And I imagine the clinicians at Tavistock that you spoke to feel very conflicted on this as well. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I think when you talk about those those two different possibilities, I think the difficulty is, and I've never met a clinician, either the most affirmative or the most cautious that, that wouldn't agree with this, is that there just isn't a way of, at the time, being able to ascertain which path a young person will take. It's it's impossible to predict which young person will grow on to be, you know, a happy trans adult and, and which will be fine not transitioning. So so that that's that's the problem. Consent is a massive issue and obviously we've had a legal case here which which challenged the notion of consent. This was a case taken by a young woman called Kira Bell who transitioned under the care of of Jids and later regretted that and said that it wasn't possible for for under 18s to to consent to this treatment because they couldn't fully appreciate the the, the potential impact of it. Initially, she won and the High Court said it's highly unlikely that under-16s can appreciate what they're signing up to, I suppose. And then that was overturned on appeal. Interestingly, the, the, the appeal didn't say, yes, they could provide consent. It just said that it wasn't for the courts to decide this. And the issue of consent is tricky. I mean, here in the UK, you can't have surgery as a minor. So it's very different to the, to the US. And I, I, I'm unclear, forgive me about the Australian situation. But here, you know, you can't have a double mastectomy at 12, 13, 14. The minimum age is, you can actually, I think, go on the waiting list at 17, but it's 17, 18, and certainly no genital surgery until 18. But realistically, with the waiting list, as they are, it would be well into somebody's 20s. So we don't have surgery here for minors. And similarly, with hormones, you have to be 16 in the UK as an absolute minimum on the National Health Service. Certainly private providers provide them 
younger, but JIDs never did. So it's a little bit different to to the situation in the United States where, you know, testosterone and estrogen are provided very, very young, you know, 12 I've heard in, in some cases. But the issue of consent is difficult because as more data came back into JIDs about the impact of the blocker, if you like. So, so in 2016, they got this first little bit of data back, which showed that everybody that they had put on the blocker at this younger age, in fact, all of those eligible had chosen to then go on to take hormones. And for, for, for a sizable minority of clinicians, this was an absolute game changer. And they said, well, like the blocker just isn't working in the way we always thought it was and the way we understood it and the, what we've been telling children and their parents. So it doesn't appear to be providing this time to think. In fact, it appears to be sort of setting somebody on a pathway. And actually that led to a massive change in how they thought about consent because it wasn't just consenting to a, a neutral pause, they believed. It was consenting to everything else that then followed on. So some clinicians completely changed tack after that. And they said, if I wasn't comfortable with a young person going on to hormones and, and you know making these permanent masculinizing or feminizing changes to the body, then I wouldn't put them on the blocker because inevitably that is what would happen next. And this is what these kind of things were discussed in the courts here. And the judges in the initial case, they agreed that, that puberty blockers couldn't be seen as a separate, uh, a separate treatment in themselves, they were part of a pathway. And that's something that, that officially JIDs at the Tavistock have rejected. But I mean, the evidence seems to support that really. Point so, that way. Yeah. Mm. So, so what is it that you're consenting to? And, and I mean, so many clinicians told me that, you know, having those conversations with young people about what it might be like to undergo a medical transition were really, really difficult. And that some young people just wouldn't or couldn't hear that you know what what would it be like to be a trans man you know a woman with an enlarged clitoris through taking testosterone how would that affect your sex life who would your future partners be and those are really difficult conversations you know vaginal atrophy is a well-known side effect of taking testosterone in in trans men and they felt that those conversations needed to be had, but that some young people couldn't hear them. And they said, well, if they can't face or be told about the reality, then are they really providing consent? Yeah. Because that that will be their future. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people listening to this are, are quite alarmed by these these trends and these parallels and correlations that are going on. I think the other thing that I think is really alarming, because at the same time as all of these issues were were starting to rise at Tavistock and around the world, the numbers of kids coming through wishing to trans also increased. So I think Tavistock used to see a handful, you know, a dozen or so patients at a time, and then all of a sudden it tipped over into hundreds, you know, over a 1,000 patients or, or, or clients. So the, the numbers have increased. And I'm, I'm wondering, actually, I'm imagining people listening to this are probably wanting to get a bit of a, a feel for how many kids are going through this process? Is there any understanding of that? How many kids, I guess, as a starting point, are identifying as trans in the world today? Well, again, the data are so, so poor. And one of the striking things about this story here in the UK is just the absence of decent data for a clinic that's been running for more than 30 years. So we don't, we don't actually know 
it's not in the public domain despite many attempts to get it how many young people have been referred and and received puberty blockers I estimate from what we do have between 1500 and 2000 but it's impossible to get a full number despite lots and lots of requests for it so either the various hospitals involved and not just the Tavistock but the endocrinology teams who are based elsewhere so those are the doctors that, that actually do the prescribing of both blockers and hormones I mean I've put in requests for those numbers and they've not been provided now they they, they must have those data if only in the patient notes so yeah that is quite striking yeah why, why are they handing it over is that is it because that they're just too scared to expose themselves given the topic is so heated at the moment, they just don't want the attention on themselves? Is that what this is about? I, I don't know what the reason is. I mean, the, the reason often given by the Tavistock is that the data doesn't exist in a way that's easily collatable, so that the, it, it's contained in, in patient notes. But obviously, that would be very time consuming to go through every single set of patient notes. But you'd think it was a number that they would want to know. I mean, I, I accept that it would be time consuming. It wasn't until 2019, so 30 years after the service opened, that they added a searchable field, you know, as 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 to whether a young person had been referred on to endocrinology, which is is quite striking. Hannah, I think in Australia there's some data that suggests that it's about 1.2 percent of Australian school children, so about 45,000 kids are thought to identify as transgender. Does that sort of play out around the world? Is it about the similar sort of numbers? Do you know what? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, these numbers change all the time. And, and I think the way they're collected is questionable. You know, there's surveys, the uh, I mean, I know that this, the latest census here put it as 0.5%, but that was for adults. So to get a really accurate number for, for under 18s, I, I just don't think we really have one. But it yeah, it's certainly going up, I would say. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think I've read some figures that suggest that the figures have gotten, let me just get this right, yeah, the trans and non-binary identification may be up as much as 1,000% among young people. Now, that's trans and non-binary. And, of course, does that mean that they then stay within that identification or is it is it a label that they kind of are playing around with? But, you know, I think the, the point is, is the numbers broadly are increasing. Oh, yeah, they absolutely are. And and you asked about the referrals to, to the Tavistock and they absolutely exploded over a very, very short period of time, really. I mean, when it opened in 1989, actually at a different hospital in South London, there were two referrals. But coming into the modern era, I mean, between 2009, 9-10, that financial year, and 2014-15, referrals went up at a rate of 50% per annum. And then between 2014 and 15 and the following year, they doubled. So they went in that one year from 700-ish to just over 1,400 in one year. And the last year that we have data for, which would be, is it 22, 23? I don't know if we have that data yet. But the last year we have data for is they had 5,000 referrals. Gosh. Now, and and, and, and actually the, the terrible thing in all of this is is that there are thousands now of young people waiting on a waiting list for years without any help whatsoever for any difficulties that they have. Hold up. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I mean, there's a bunch of theories that are put forward for this increase, you know, greater acceptance. You know, it's also, I think that it's a horrible word, but the word social contagion, I think, comes into play here. And I, I know that there was a study that was done, it was a joint study, Australia and, and the UK, that found there was a significant association between weekly referral rates at these clinics and the number of trans items that appeared in the local media one to two weeks beforehand. So, you know, People are seeing more information about it. It's becoming normalised. And so, you know, perhaps people who wouldn't have come out, so to speak, several decades ago feel more comfortable too. That's certainly part of it. But your book also explains that there are some other issues going on here. And you've touched on it a little already, but there are internal audits that were done at Tavistock and at other clinics that exposed, I guess, a more fundamental crisis. These kids, a lot of them had experienced abuse, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and a bunch of other issues in much higher rates than in the general population. So the obvious question becomes, were they distressed because they were trans and therefore some kind of treatment would be appropriate and could help them? Or were they distressed for other very real, important reasons that need to be addressed and that transitioning was seen, you know, as a way to cope, in which case we really need to be looking at all of this really, really differently. So mental health issues, I think, played out really heavily amongst the the, the number of kids that were coming through. And I think you've, you spoke to a number of kids in your book, you interview a, a number of them. And one story that really struck me was a kid with really severe obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think, would you be able to sort of explain his story? Sure. It's a really upsetting story. So this is a young person I've called Alex and, and I speak to his mum, actually. And so at the age of 15, she starts to think there's a problem. She describes him as a, you know, a friendly giant, really. He was very, very tall, very gentle. He'd come out as gay, but he wasn't effeminate. He, he just, you know, he was just gentle and he was autistic. And she starts to notice that he comes home from school and he showers every day. And for a while, she didn't think anything of this, really. She just thought she was blessed with a very rare thing to have a a, 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 a very hygienic teenage son. son. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then she describes how one day he, he comes home from school and she says, oh, could you pick something up for me? And he says, I can't. And he he's standing with his arms out 
outstretched either side in his hands. He said, I can't, I'm dripping with germs. And he's, and then she realizes there's a problem. So she, she goes to see her, her local doctor, her GP, and they get a referral to CAMS, which I believe you have in Australia, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, for, well, they don't really know, but yeah, he's, he's, he's clearly suffering. And he has a couple of sessions at CAMS during which he tells them that he's trans and he blurts this out to his mother. You've never understood me. Can't you see I'm trans? Blah, 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 blah. And from that moment on, his team at CAMS refer to him by female pronouns and they make a referral to the Tavistock. And his mum is saying, what are you doing? I have no issue with trans people. In fact, she hadn't really heard the word transgender at this point. It was kind of in the mid uh, 2010s. But she said, my son isn't very well. Surely our first priority is to get him well. And very, very quickly, he's, his health goes very severely downhill. He can't leave the house anymore. He's showering umpteen times a day. He can feel th- things on him. He sees things crawling on the walls. He floods his bathroom because he is so frightened of not being clean after he's gone to the toilet and the toilet floods and there's feces on the floor. It's it's just incredibly upsetting. It's it's awful for everybody involved. And 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 meanwhile this is going on, he's getting not really any proper help and his appointment comes up to be seen by by the gender service. And and rather than take the fact that he is at this point incapable of leaving his own home because of his fear of germs as a sign that he is very, very unwell and perhaps shouldn't even be thinking about the idea of transitioning, they say, well, look, let's work on how we get you down to London to your first appointment. This is what we can concentrate on. His mother is in a state of absolute horror and disbelief. She just doesn't understand what's going on. He's then prescribed a very strong psychotic by a psychiatrist at the CAM service to help him on a dry run down to London, which is several hours away from their home and a couple of trains. And needless to say that the dry run is a disaster and he he's stuck in London by himself, desperately unhappy. He eventually gets home and is sick and it's terrible. Now, again, rather than take that as a sign that he needs to be helped with his obsessive compulsive disorder, JIDs say, well, look, if you can't come to us, we will come to you. And one of the most senior gender clinicians in the UK travels to go and see this young teenage boy near to his home. And according to his mother, who was in the first appointment, the possibility of puberty blockers is raised at that very first appointment. Now, ultimately, he he doesn't transition. She pulls him out of all this, both CAMs and JIDs, because he can't go to the appointments. And he goes to have private talking therapy. And over several years, he becomes happy again with being a gay man. I believe he's married now to a man and he still has mental health problems. But, you know, part of it, which I've sort of missed out, is that he was really 
disgustingly bullied for being gay, like was subjected to really vile homophobic slurs. You know, he had a crush on one of his friends and, and, and when the parents found out, you know, they, they didn't want him to associate with him anymore. It was really, really horrible and upsetting. And for his mum, she said it doesn't, you know, for her it was like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. This is this is a this is a reaction to being told that you're dirty, you're filthy for being gay, and and it's it's a, it's an incredibly upsetting story. And and even you know talking to the mother, you know, many years on, it's it, it's really horrendous. But it was a sign, really, of a bigger issue that so many clinicians told me, which was as soon as this word gender is mentioned, then everything else seemed to be forgotten, and everything was seen through the prism of gender. So it didn't matter that here you had a young man who was clearly very ill, incapable of leaving his home, couldn't be touched, couldn't touch anything, wanted to, you know, cut off his own genitals and saw things crawling on the walls. That didn't that that didn't matter because all that could be seen as completely separate to the fact that he identified as as trans. Hannah, you raised two points there that I think are worth picking up on. I understand that 35% of young people who are presenting at these clinics have autism. And that's quite significant when you consider that only 1% to 2% of the general population have autism. So I'd love to know what's going on there. But there's also this connection with being gay. And there's a lot of discussion around the world, concern, question marks raised around this, that perhaps many of these kids are, quote unquote, just gay or lesbian or bi. Yeah, I think I think it, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, does, isn't it? I mean, I think that there's this tendency to to try and explain the rise in numbers by this sort of it's either social contagion or it's greater acceptance of trans people. And for me, I don't use the phrase contagion either, but there's definitely peer influence. And I think there's greater visibility, but there's so much more to add to those two things. And and I think if we start with, with sexuality, I think this is the aspect of the story that, that people find the most difficult to understand or engage with. And indeed, I don't understand it. You know, I, I've grown up in sort of the London suburbs my entire life. I've got lots of gay friends. You know, I, I work in London. I work in the media. When... This was a story that was being relayed to me umpteen times and consistently by very different people who had not worked together. I found it difficult to believe as well because how on earth can young people feel ashamed to be gay, I thought, in, you know, the 21st century? That it, it, Well, you know, where we are, to the, the 2020s. I, I just didn't think that was still a thing. And that's the response that so many people say, like, it doesn't make sense. It's just so it's not true. Now, all I can say is that pretty much every single clinician, even those who spoke favorably about the work of the Tavistock, acknowledged that so many of the young people they were seeing were same-sex attracted. And I say that because obviously those young people themselves didn't necessarily identify as gay because they saw themselves as trans. But I mean, there's another young person I speak to in the book who surgically transitioned and then has detransitioned subsequently, who said for her, it absolutely was about her sexuality. Her first, you know, romantic relationship was with another girl. And she was made to feel really ashamed about that. The girl wouldn't, you know, be seen with her in public. They were sort of 13 or so at the time. She didn't want to be a lesbian. She thought, therefore, it's something shameful. But she was only ever attracted to girls. 
And while she was at JIDS, she talked about this, but it was ignored. And actually in her assessment report, it was just described as a, quote, crisis of sexuality. And that was it. And while she was at JIDS saying that she was a trans boy, she also had a boyfriend who was another trans boy who was also at JITS. So here you had effectively two female-bodied young people in a relationship, neither of whom wanted to be seen as female. Now, that's quite... (laughs) That's quite something, really. Well, yeah, that actually points to another thing that comes out of all of this. And this is a piece... This is a part of the puzzle I'm very interested in, and I've written about it over on my Substack, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. But... A huge proportion of patients at Tavistock, at least, but I think it's it's broadly at clinics around the world, young girls wishing to trans to become to become men, and it was the other way around thirty years ago. The bulk of people, you know, presenting at these clinics were boys wishing to trans to become women, and I think it's really worth talking about what's going on there because. Earlier this year, and I wrote about this, as I say, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC in the US, released its latest youth risk behavior survey results. And I'm sure you're aware of it because I know that a lot of commentators, including Jonathan Haidt and and so on, have referenced this back to what was happening at Tavistock. What it found is that, you know, young teenagers are getting unhappier, but particularly young women. And they also identified that sort of trans and bisexual children were also incredibly, were the unhappiest cohort in their study. And I think there's potentially a correlation there that things are getting particularly bad for girls. I think the teenage years for young women have always been hard. I remember as a young girl, you know, everyone around me, we were all like, I wish I was a boy. I hate being a girl because so much is happening to your body, so much is happening to you emotionally, and there's a transition that goes on in society where you are suddenly deemed an object. You know, you're a sexual object, and that takes a huge amount of adjustment. That is being dialed up today with social media, with all the kinds of pressures, the OnlyFans sites, the sexualization of young girls has gone through the roof. And I can't help but think, no wonder these girls who are thinking, I just wish I was a boy, looking for quick fix solutions. And a gender clinic with puberty blockers is probably going to seem appealing amongst their confusion, their distress, and the lack of support more broadly that's happening in our culture. What do you think of that? I don't, you don't have to agree, by the way, Hannah, but I'm wondering if there's something going on there. Yeah, I think it's the case for some. It, it goes back into the mix, doesn't it? I think it. you're right that it is it is really difficult to be a teenage girl right now. It always has been, but I think it's more so now with the ubiquity of porn and not just porn, but you know, really quite violent porn and the expectations on young women. And actually someone I spoke to the, for the book who, who has a whose daughter's now at university, but said, you know, what what is the impact on 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 teenage girls of 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 growing up and having their in that environment and having their first sexual experiences with boys or and or girls who've been exposed to that? Like that's got to have some kind of impact. It's frightening. And and two clinicians who worked at JIDS wrote a really great paper on this about what's happening with the girls. Yes, for some it, it it's a way of escaping this expectation of 
uber femininity and and you know I, I I'm not like that girl that must be what a woman is so therefore maybe I'm not a woman it, it's it's really quite complicated I just want to your previous question about about sexuality I just want to stress that it's not something that you know people get very upset about it and I, I do understand why but it's not something that I am saying, or indeed that these clinicians are making up, there is very limited data, but the data that we do have absolutely supports what they're saying. So so the data from from the Tavistock, from Tavistock JIDS, which is limited, but it indicated that for the for the adolescents, you know, ninety percent in a in a given year of, of the young people referred, ninety percent of the females were either same-sex attracted or bisexual, and 80% of the males. And several years later, those, those percentages had dropped to, to 70% and 60% respectively, but they're still really high. And and the landmark study, if you like, that started the whole idea of medically transition, transitioning children from, from the Netherlands, every single one of the girls in that study was same-sex attracted, every single one, and all but one of the boys. So... The clinicians who are accused of somehow being too close to the work because they themselves are gay or lesbian or who are seeing something that's not there would say, look, look at the data. <laughs> like it's not comprehensive by any stretch of the imagination, but look at the data and listen to the young people themselves. I mean, some, some of these young people, as we've already said, will say, yes, I was gay, but I, I, I didn't want to be because I, was, I felt shame around it. And I think it, it's slightly with the autism point as well before going on to, to, to sort of the general mental health of teenage girls. But no one was saying that because a young person had autism, that meant that they couldn't be trans or, that, or they shouldn't transition. They were saying, like you said, that's really high as a percentage, given what we might expect. So shouldn't we just think about this a bit more carefully and ask a few more questions and just slow things down? Because we know about autism that... Some people with autism, they tend to think in a really black and white way and they'll tell you that themselves. And, you know, gender wouldn't be any different to any other part of their life. So that's all that people were saying. Not that if you have autism that you can't be trans. It was just, we need to think about this. Sorry, I just thought that was important to say. And then, but yeah, I think that is for for other people, I think potentially a trans identification and a desire to escape womanhood and all that may entail or what they think it entails is 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 part of it as well. I think it's completely different pathways for different people. And that's that's really the problem of a solely affirmative approach because it only assumes one outcome. And if you go back to where we were earlier in the conversation, which is any study, albeit they're all poor, has always shown that some will transition. So we can't deny, and I never do, that, that trans people exist, but also that some don't. <laughs> so we can't just have young people being treated as if they're all going to be trans adults either because there's no evidence for that. Hannah, uh, so much of what you are writing about and you're talking about here speaks to a broader issue that's happening in our culture and that is our the, the way that we struggle with nuance and complexity and you know, this bifurcation of just about everything. And uh, that speaks to the title of your book, Time to Think. We really need to spend more time thinking through these complex issues before we jump into these solutions. And what we're seeing as a result of all of this is that the trans issue, particularly as it pertains to young people, 
has just blown up, particularly in the US, where I know that your book has done, it hasn't been published there yet, but it's about to be published. But it's you've done a lot of podcasts with the heterodox community, so Jesse Single with Barry Weiss on Honestly, because this topic is huge over there. And to a large extent, it's been weaponized by the far right. So we now have states that are banning any kind of treatment for children along these lines. And it's, you know hugely tied up in the woke wars. It's become this lightning rod topic. And given that it affects such a small number of people, it's it's hard to fathom. But I think it's, yeah, it's got so much to do with our inability to deal with complexity. But in your work doing sort of the book tour and podcasts and so on, have you got a sense as to why it's become so heated? You know, has it has it anything to do with the fact that we are in a time of flux and threat and and uncertainty. And during such times, gender becomes, you know, weaponized. You know, it's often about getting women to become married and have children. You know, conservative forces generally bring those topics up in times of flux. I I wonder whether the trans debate is speaking to that tendency. What are your thoughts more broadly from from being in this space now for quite a long time? I think it's really very different in different countries. I mean, here in the UK, certainly there are arguments that it is starting to be more politically weaponized than, than, it, than it has been in previous years. But the way I've always approached this is to separate out what's what's going on with children and young people from, from the rest of, I don't know, the, the culture wars, if you like. Because for me, it's always been a healthcare story. You know, are each and every one of these children... and and that's what we're talking about, children who are often very, very distressed and often very vulnerable. Are they each getting the best evidence-based healthcare that they should be? And why should this group of young people not be given the same standard of healthcare as everybody else? And so I try to not engage with the broader cultural war because I don't actually think it's necessary to improve the care for this group of young people. Because that's that's a healthcare story. I think, I mean, I was recently in the United States, and it, it, it's so shockingly different there than than to Europe. And as you say, because you have the people who are seemingly raising concerns about the lack of an evidence base and childhood transition, also wanting to take away women's reproductive rights, and therefore it's very very difficult for those who who are on the left, shall we say, in the United States, to voice any legitimate concerns they may have about the former because they absolutely do not want to be aligned with the latter, you know. So it's really difficult. And having conversations with various people in the States who are all left-leaning, all Democrats, about the situation there, and they're, they're in despair. And they say, you know, the difficulty is because of the way our healthcare system is structured, we can't even air, we can't even have a conversation about the evidence base underpinning puberty blockers and hormones about how best to care for these kids unless we do it in the courts. There's no other way to do it. Whereas, you know, in Europe, we've got national health bodies undertaking, you know, completely ideologically neutral systematic reviews of the evidence. They're trying to take out some of that heat. And and I just don't see that in the US. Um and that's what makes it really, really difficult because, as you say, you know, it's made into this toxic culture war issue when it really isn't. 
Yeah, it's really interesting what you say about what's happening in the US versus the rest of the world, because I think Australia is quite similar to the UK. We do get fed the debates that are happening in the US. So I see right wing commentators, both in the UK and, and Australia, picking up on these woke war type controversies and trying to run with it. But they don't get that far because it, it, we just sort of don't buy it in the same way as people do in the, in the US. But you did have your book rejected by <laughs> 22 publishers. And I know it, it's it's not always, yeah, no, sorry to point it out to you. You did get a publisher in the end and I should flag to everybody, your book then did become a Sunday Times bestseller. So there we go. But it was turned down. And I know that, you know, you, you got some feedback on this. So also, the debate has also played out in Scotland, what was happening there. It, it does surface. And I think in Australia and the UK, there's this sort of awkwardness, this sort of tentative, don't know what to do because we could be cancelled kind of attitude. Is that what you experienced? And was that the feedback from these publishers that turned down the book? The feedback was kind of odd because of the 22, 10 didn't respond at all. Which is unusual. Yeah, it's really unusual. So so my agent said that generally speaking, you'd expect, you know, a yes or a no from 90%. Uh, and that really wasn't the case here. And of the others, what was so striking was that none of them were negative. So none of them said, no, we just, there's something wrong with the proposal or there's not a story here. The responses were mainly fear-driven, I suppose. So so I, I think one one said, this is a really important story you've got to tell it, you know, then... Just not with us. In parentheses, <laughs> yeah, just not with us. Another said, you know, it won't sit well with other authors that we have on our books. Another, who actually really wanted it, had to take it to the CEO of the, the whole company, who then said no, that it was too controversial. It was utterly depressing because it's complete cowardice. And, you know, what what is it that these people are saying? Because they have the knowledge at that point. And you're saying that I'm perfectly happy to go along with some young people, not all, but some young people being harmed because I don't want to upset either my staff or another author that I have. And I just found that really hard to get my head round. Because as we've said several times, I've never denied people's identities or the right to transition or the existence of trans people. It's not about that. It, it's a health it's issue. About, exactly. And it's a health issue for children. It's, it's, you know, adults are completely different. Adults are different. And I would also argue it's, it's, it's also an issue about our society and the fact that we're shying away from that. Australia is very, very similar. I've had a very, yeah, I've had a very similar experience with certain topics in, in Australia. Yep, they're important. We're so glad you're talking about them, Sarah. However, we do not want to be associated. And I think that's going to happen more and more. The Americans will fight it out, <laughs> as we know. But yeah, the, the response from countries, you know, like the UK and Australia, I think are equally problematic. Now, look, I, I've really extended my time with you here. Sorry, I just want to say, but what you think? <laughs> no, but we know from history, don't we, that bad things happen when good people look away. And, and at the end of the opening chapter of the book, I say, you know, this is not a story that denies trans identities, you know, nor that argues that trans people deserve to lead anything other than happy lives free of harassment. This is a story about, a, you know, a failure of a health service for vulnerable children based on poor evidence and crucially how so many people knew about it 
watched and did nothing. And that, that includes the publishing industry, apart from Swift Press, who published this book. <laughs> shout out if to everybody Swift looks Press. away, shout big shout out to Swift Press. If if everybody looks away, then nothing can change. And of course, these conversations are difficult, but we still have to have them. <laughs> Yeah, a message, hurrah, amen to you because, you know, this is something that we could apply to just about everything that's going on in the world today. Now, look, I would love to just get a a final kind of take from you about what you think the solution could be moving forward. I know you mentioned the European countries are having better discussions around this. I know that in France, where I'm living at the moment, Scandinavia, they are taking a cautious approach, but they're basically saying we need more evidence and we're going to go and do more research into this. And I think here in France, they've actually cited the social contagion factor as as the impetus for that. And I guess they're wanting to go back to more of a watchful waiting approach that was sort of predominant in the 19 or pre, pre-1990s, which plays into the title of your book, once again, Time to Think. Is that what you think we should be doing going forward or do you have other ideas? Well, again, I preface this by saying that I'm not a clinician. I, I, I think what's clear to me is that just as there are different ways into a young person's gender dysphoria or gender distress, then there are different ways out of it as well. And so I think the future of gender services have to acknowledge that so that what will be right for one person will not be right for others. So we cannot just have a medicalized model for this because we know that that doesn't work for everybody. You know, I've spoken to people who insist that medically transitioning has saved their lives and they're very, very happy as trans adults. And I don't question that. But I've also spoken to people who've absolutely been harmed by this. So we can't just continue on as normal. So I think, you know, and whether that needs to be gender services or just more holistic services generally for young people, I don't think you can siphon off one aspect of someone's life and try and treat that in inverted commas in the broader sense of the word and ignore who what else is going on. And I think that's one of the difficulties that's happened at, at JIDS is that, as we've talked about, you know, all these other things that might be going on in a young person's lives, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, perhaps internalized homophobia, they can't be separated out from this one aspect of, of how they see themselves. So I think when there is very little evidence or evidence with low certainty that the intervention is beneficial, then we have to proceed with caution. And that doesn't mean taking it away. It just means we have to add to that evidence base. We have to be careful and, you know, slow down and on, and offer different pathways. It, it's very difficult. I don't know about the waiting lists in the rest of Europe, in, in France and Scandinavia and Australia, but the waiting list here now is so long and it's going to take years to correct the system, if you like, whatever that will look like. There's a lot, a lot to unpack in this topic. And I think, as I say, it's it's a bit of a lightning rod. It really is exposing so much of what is problematic in our culture today. And the kids are suffering. And whichever way you want to look at it, they're suffering. So thank you so much for writing the book, doing the research, exposing it, talking about it in such a calm and measured way. And yeah, for for publishing your book and, and I, I hate to say it, for being courageous. I mean, this shouldn't have to be <laughs> courageous stuff. We, sh- we shouldn't be applauded for, for speaking the truth, but that's, that's where we're at. I'm sure you cop your fair share of abuse on social media. 
And I, I wish you all the best with that, Hannah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. I, I'm not sure it's brave. It's, it's doing our job as journalists, but, but thank you. I really appreciate it. So off the back of that long conversation, I thought I should follow up with some stuff pertaining to the Australian situation. According to the Royal Children's Hospital, about 1.2% of Australian school children, so that's about 45,000 children, are thought to identify as transgender. Although, as Hannah points out in our conversation, these figures are very imprecise, partly because of the way these surveys are conducted. Okay, between 2004 and 2017, transgender children required approval from the Family Court of Australia, and I think that was quite unusual at the time before being prescribed hormone treatment, although a series of rulings in 2013 and 2017, and I think again in 2022, removed the need for court approval of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormone therapy where there is no dispute between a child, their parents, and their treating doctors. Medical treatment is available to a child who has been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, but a diagnosis requires that the child feels and verbalises a strong desire to have a different gender for at least six months. In Australia, across the board, young people can access blockers as early as 10. They can access hormone therapy. Now, it says over 16, but the language seems to be very caveated. And it seems to depend on the circumstances. So if a child is younger than 16, I think they can access this therapy if they satisfy the conditions of what's called the Gillick competency, which relates to maturity and intelligence. And that same Gillick competency kind of assessment also applies to kids who might be under 18. So in Australia, to get surgery, you have to be over 18. However, again, this caveat applies. But like I say, most states and territories, people under the age of 18 can only access this gender-affirming medical treatment with the consent of their parents or carers, but failing that by seeking a court order, as I mentioned before. In Victoria, however, there's been a bit of controversy lately regarding schools. So students can socially transition, so socially transition at school without parental consent if they are deemed a mature minor. But that's a social transition. So it does seem to be a very alive topic here in Australia. It seems that the policy and the laws um, in the various states and territories and federally seem to be, I think, reassessed, re-evaluated quite regularly. But I'm really keen to hear your take if you have a personal experience with all of this. So you can comment over on Substack. If you comment on the latest post, everyone will be able to see your input there. One final thing I want to comment on. If the correlation between young teen girls' rates of distress and unhappiness and the rapid increase in girls wishing to identify as trans interests you. I have written a fair bit on this over at Substack and I'll put the links, lots of links are also in those links in the show notes here. Also, I write a little bit about what boys are doing in response to this. I also link to commentary by the openly gay conservative commentator Andrew Sullivan, who writes about the gay community's concerns around all of this, if that interests. I'll also put a link to a graph that shows the uptick in the number of girls wishing to transition, and it's got a whole bunch of graphs, and of particular interest is what's going on in New Zealand. As I say, this subject is really important. It's affecting our young people. And I think it's the job of adults to ask better questions around this, to get the research done as well. The kinds of questions we should be asking, is there a link between the despair young women are feeling from living in the current system and their increased need or desire to redefine gender boundaries? 
are these hot gender issues exposing more worrying stuff happening with cisgender dynamics? And I think that's a really big question. And I've got a quote here just to round things off from a Stanford researcher that did a lot of work tracking this information. She has written, teenage girls are challenging the meaning and the traditional constraints of gender in ways I couldn't have imagined. But many boys are still trying to fit into a gender structure that has historically benefited them. I think that goes partway to explaining what's happening with that difference in the number of girls and boys um, presenting to these clinics. It's a big topic. It requires a lot of nuance, compassion and an ability to ask different kinds of questions, as I say. Okay, so until next week, stay wild. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.